This episode is brought to you by Birthsong Botanicals, whose postpartum herb bath for mom and baby is the perfect way to soothe sore perineal muscles, slow bleeding, minimize swelling, and help dry the newborn's umbilical cord, all while creating a relaxing and restoring bonding experience between mom and baby. Head on over to birthsongbotanicals.com and check out their postpartum herb bath. Common Sense pregnancy customers get a special 10% discount at checkout when they use the promo code Common Sense. That's two words, lowercase. Hey, everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast where we talk about all of that and then some. I'm the author of the book, Common Sense Pregnancy. I'm a registered nurse, a mother of several, and a writer and podcaster who talks a lot about the ways that culture, politics, and healthcare either work or don't work in women's lives as mothers and parents. We talk about current events, about medical studies, new practices, and old traditions, all of that. And this week, we're going to have a couple of good juicy conversations about a topic that's huge for this generation of newly pregnant parents, genetic testing. Now, amniocentesis has been around for a good long time, but the type and variety of genetic screening and diagnostic tests that are available to parents now are unprecedented. We know a lot about our children before we ever meet them, and some of the stuff we find out can have a huge impact on our pregnancies, families, and lives. Now, I wrote a big section on this in the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, about all the genetic tests you'll be offered and the pros and cons of genetic testing. If you haven't already read that, I'd recommend that you do either, you know, before or right after you listen to this week's conversation, because it'll ground you in what we're talking about, and it'll help you kind of pull all the information together. So anyway... That's what we're going to talk about today, and today's guests, Heather Avis and midwife Chris Beard, both have a lot to say. So let's just take a real quick break and get right to this week's guests. Okay, we're back. Now, I got an email from a listener, Kate, who has a situation that I think is becoming increasingly common. She received some unexpected news in her genetic screening and testing and made me think of Heather Avis. Heather Avis is the author of The Lucky Few and mother to Mason, Truly, and August. Now, we had Heather on the podcast way back in episode 91, and that was in September of 2017. And we talked about infertility and adoption and raising children with Down syndrome. And I wanted to get Heather back on the line this week because I'm hoping she'll help me answer a listener's question. So let's call her up. Hi, Heather. It's Jeannie. Hi, Jeannie. How are you? I'm doing good. Nice to talk to you. It's nice to talk to you again, too. We've spoken before back in September of 17, but things change. Life's changed. Where are you living? Where am I talking uh, to you? Yes, I'm still in Southern California. I've moved since then, though, from I was in the Los Angeles area, and I'm an hour east now in a city called Redlands. And I was in a little part of Los Angeles yesterday called Torrance. So yes. I was enjoying your weather, though it's cold for you guys. It's, it's cold been, for you guys. Yeah, it's been colder than I want. I live. I I feel like I live here for a reason, and it is to not be in this kind of cold. So yeah, I'm hoping I'm hoping it's passing. <laughs> it's been very cold. <laughs> yeah. Well, I am really glad to have you back on the podcast. And um, you know, just in case some of our listeners haven't listened to that 
last episode, which was episode 91, September of 17. Um, I just want to ask you that big, hard question once again, which is, who are you and what do you do? Yes. So I am, I've always answered this question. The first thing I say usually is I am a mom. I'm a wife and a mom. Those are my greatest pleasures. Um, But my job is my family. My family is my job. And so everything kind of intermingles. Um, And so I feel like who I am and what I do, I'm this person who is trying to figure out how to stay in a gray space and be content there um, and not to strive to be too much of one thing or another, but letting it all kind of intermingle. If that makes sense. It does make sense. And I think I've mentioned before that I like to use the word integrated, Mm -hmm. or I like the concept of that where we're just kind of being ourselves, doing our best in everything that we do, but we, but balance, nobody can do that. I can't balance even if I'm gripping the wall in tree pose. (laughs) I know that's real. Yeah, no, I, I do feel like there is this push for working moms, especially like find balance, find balance. And I feel for me when I'm striving for balance, I'm the most off balance because it's not, it's not real. You know, it's like what you're saying, um, integration, then you can really find some health within all the spaces that you find yourselves in or that I find myself in. But if I'm striving to find balance, it's just, I don't think it's a real thing. (laughs) I don't think it can happen. Yeah, I don't either. Maybe somebody can do it. It's certainly not me. Not me either. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I also kind of like the idea of people that are multi-passionate, multi-faceted. Like there's this idea that we're all supposed to be sort of, you know, we've got the mom thing and we've got the work thing, but you know, we're, they're sort of separated and we're supposed to be focused on singular activities, you know, like whatever your career is or whatever your thing is. But I think that you are a person much like myself who has a lot of things that we're into. Yes, I do. I have a lot of things I'm into. And again, a lot of what I do for work, it is my family. And so it is, it, I think the trickiest thing I'm, I'm always trying to figure out is, um, when there does need to be a line, when to draw that between work and family, because my family is my work, my work is my family. And so it is, it's blurry for sure. Well, I mentioned, you know, before I got you on the line today that you're the author of The Lucky Few and that, you know, we've had you on before, but some of our listeners are coming to us, you know, they haven't listened to that one yet. So let's describe what your work and family is. Yeah, definitely. So I'm a author and a writer and a speaker. I actually started a podcast since the last time we've spoken. Um, I've got a YouTube channel coming out March 21st of 2019 and a lot of different things happening. But my main focus is um, shifting the Down syndrome narrative. So my husband and I run a social advocacy brand that focuses on creating a more inclusive world with an emphasis on shifting the Down syndrome narrative. Um, I'm a mom of three kids and my oldest and youngest both have Down syndrome. And so as soon as they enter our life, we quickly realized that there isn't a lot of space in the world for them and especially not for them to be who they are. Um, and even less, um, a, there's a very limited recognition that they hold any value. And so we are just realizing that they are the most incredible humans. We have so much to learn from people with Down syndrome and different abilities and they should have an equitable place at the table and at schools and at churches and in their communities. So we really, um, we've created a whole business around it to kind of shift that narrative. I love that. For so long, 
the narrative has been that you're right, that these children don't have value, even to the extent where, you know, many times, um, you know, a, abortion is recommended or back yeah. in the day, the you know, children with Down syndrome is recommended that they be institutionalized. Right. And, and I'm so grateful that the narrative is changing and, and it's changing rapidly in large yeah. part because of the work that you're doing, Heather. Oh, thanks. It, yeah. It's, I think it's, it's kind of, it, I, you know, I've often said we're at this miraculous time in our world's history where social media means that we can broadcast anything, yeah. you know, and of course, so much of it is just silly nonsense, but so much of it has so much value. Mm -hmm. For instance, the work that you're doing. Thanks. And I, I have a lot of friends in the, in the same sphere at this point in life who live all over the world. And, um, we, I've talked about, I've, I've had moments in the last couple of years where I've thought, you know, like you're saying, because of this tool, social media, um, we are, we are privileged to live in a day and age when in 50 years and a hundred years and 500 years, they're going to look back. I really believe this at, at this day and age and say, there was a, that's when we saw a huge shift in what people thought about people with Down syndrome. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, so many people have come before me and my kids and I have places that we get to be at because of the, the parents who have come before us and blazed trails and fought. And I'm grateful forever and forever indebted to them. But we've got this social media tool, like you said. It is this little miraculous tool that can be used for so much good if we let it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I love that you are another woman who's inhabiting the podcasting space and the speaker space to talk about issues that really matter. Yeah. You know, the yeah, more well, of thank us, you. Thank yeah, you. the more of us that take up that space, the better the space is. I agree. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Thanks. So <clears throat> the reason I wanted to get you on the podcast this week is because I received an email from a listener named Kate. And when I thought, read it, I thought, I know somebody who might be able to give Kate some insight, Heather. <laughs> so um, if you don't mind, I'm going to read that letter to you now. Sure. And it's a two-part email. So a um, little bit long, but I think she's a good writer too. Okay. So, hi, Jeannie. I've been a podcast listener for about three and a half years since I was pregnant with my son. I'm currently 27 weeks pregnant, and I have a topic that I don't recall you covering, genetic testing. Such testing wasn't even a conversation with my son. However, it was recommended to me with my current office. My son was born premature, but I am only 31, so not advanced maternal age. Well, the initial testing was positive for Down syndrome. The way the results were delivered were very uncomfortable. I had a better experience after meeting with a genetic counselor and a maternal fetal medicine specialist. But those results were delivered to me in what I considered now to be an inappropriate manner. I'd love to know your thoughts on testing and if this seems to be the norm across the country. I feel like if these tests are going to be recommended, practitioners need to learn better how to give positive, that was put in quotes, results. I have plenty more to say, but wanted to keep this rather short. So I... I um, wrote her back and thanked her for reaching out to me and told her that, yeah, we haven't talked a lot about it here on the pod, a little bit here and there. Um, it's something I talk about more extensively in my book, Common Sense Pregnancy. But, um, you know, I, I asked her for more information. And it, of course, I asked her if it was okay to read her letter. 
So the next part of the letter says, hello, I'm doing much better now than I was 12 weeks ago. I got myself a therapist specializing in maternal health because I knew I would have to take care of myself so I could take care of my family. When I first received the initial results, the call was from a nurse who quickly told me the testing had come back positive for Down syndrome, but that didn't mean the baby had Down syndrome and spouted off the number for the maternal fetal medicine office. This was quite shocking, of course. While I was preparing for another premature birth, Down syndrome was not on my radar. It wasn't until I saw the actual test results loaded into my health account that I saw what the numbers were and deciphered what they meant. At that, at that time, it was a 1% chance. After my initial testing, I met with maternal fetal medicine doctor and had my anatomy scan. This showed a small ventricular septal defect, which at that time I was told could be a confirming, uh, there's a word here that I'm not quite sure what she meant, but a confirming <coughs> symptom of Down syndrome, but not necessarily as many babies without a Down syndrome diagnosis have a congenital heart defect. I opted to have the maternity 21 testing done rather than an amniocentesis. This testing also came back positive with a 64% chance, but based upon the ultrasound findings, they determined it was a 90-some percent positive chance. The genetic counselor who called me with this information asked me, are these the results you expected? This was a different counselor than the one we had met with. Of course, they weren't the results I was expecting. And even if they were, I thought, what a strange thing to ask. Mm -hmm. I just kept asking her what I should do next and where I can get further information. They told me they'd send me some information via mail, which I received two weeks later. In the meantime, although not at all a big social media user, I hit the ground running, connecting with Down syndrome groups and parents. They truly have been my lifeline and provided the guidance and advice I so desperately needed. One other thing I'd like to touch on is that during all of this, I was asked multiple, multiple times if I planned to continue with the pregnancy. I am pro-choice, but never did I think I would have to make a choice such as this for a wanted pregnancy. I now wonder if those early test results without a proper explanation lead to terminating babies based upon an imperfect percentage. In fact, one of the doctors in my OBGYN practice told me her quad screen numbers for both of her sons came back with a one in 60% chance and neither of her sons had Down syndrome. My quad screen was one in 70. Anyways, a very complicated issue. You're welcome to share my story and even if you choose not to, I appreciate you responding and everything you do with your podcast. So Heather, there's a yeah. lot to unpack there, but mm-hmm. what do you think, Ryder? What's your initial take? Oh my gosh. I have a lot of thoughts. I'm trying, I'm, I'm listening, like trying to gather them. Um, there's a few different pieces here that are really important. I mean, we can look first at, I guess I just want to get right down to it. As I said earlier, Um, I consider myself a narrative shifter in this Down syndrome narrative. And so there is the biggest piece, in my opinion, that is this idea that having a child with Down syndrome is a bad thing um, Mm -hmm. or a devastating thing or something related to something negative. And that, that is a whole huge conversation. And that is, I think, the foundation for this email and for this conversation even happening. But we, I think what we need to get to as a people and as a society is to recognize that Down syndrome doesn't equal bad. 
um, there's a lot of misconception, a lot of misunderstanding because people don't know and you can't know what you don't know. Right. And when you take the time to enter into the Down syndrome community, and I love in her second email how she said she's done that and that's yeah. been a lifeline for her. I love that. Yeah. And I'm not surprised. Um, but when you enter into the Down syndrome community, you find out that everybody who at one point was devastated is no longer. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody raising a child with Down syndrome feels pretty lucky to get to be doing so. Mm-hmm. Siblings feel incredibly grateful. Um, grandparents, I mean, everybody who actually has a loved one with Down syndrome is incredibly grateful. Most, almost all people, I've not met all the people in the world in this right. category, you know. Um, does but you've mean, met a lot. I've met thousands. Yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't, it doesn't mean it's not hard, right? Parenting is hard. It's the hardest job of all time. And it doesn't mean that it's not messy. It doesn't mean that there's missed expectation. There's not missed expectations or grieving or mourning. All those things are true, but that doesn't equal bad. So there's that big picture um, that when a woman gets a diagnosis, why are we feeling so devastated when the people in that community aren't devastated? Mm-hmm. There's a big miss there. Mm-hmm. Um, so why do you think they are? Why? why? I think is- because, like I said, you can't know what you don't know. Yeah. And there's the, I think a big part of it is the medical community. And I'm careful saying this because there are so many incredible medical professionals who are delivering a diagnosis in a way that is helpful, um, educational, informative, and not awful. Um, But if the first thing you hear when you find out that your child in utero has Down syndrome is, I'm so sorry, or why don't we take care of this? Or, you know, like if that's what you're hearing, then right away, it's going to be negative. And that's, that has been the conversation for really forever. Mm-hmm. Um, or since Down syndrome has been diagnosed, and and that's the that's the hard work we're doing. We're trying to turn that conversation completely. But that has been what it is. So it's a it's a slow shift. Um, and I think what I mean, what she's saying in the way that her diagnosis was delivered, and people, numerous people expecting her to terminate the pregnancy because of the di- diagnosis, is is nothing new. Um, I, I mean, I could tell you for 10 minutes stories that women have told me about their diagnosis that you cannot even believe another adult would say out loud, let alone a medical professional. Um, and then you can look at things like Iceland, I think it was in 2017 or maybe it was either, yeah, it was 2017 Iceland. This report came out that they were boasting that they have eradicated down syndrome by terminate by testing 100% of pregnancies and terminating 100% of the mm-hmm. positive um, and that so they had a 100% termination rate and they're how celebrating How can you have it. that? How would 100% mothers agree to that? I mean it, it isn't mandatory. No, it's not mandatory, but it's the it's the societal it's norm. The, and it's the yeah, the cultural It's the cultural norm and it's yeah, and it's the yeah. purpose of the testing. So the only reason you would have the test is to find out if you did have a child, then the next step is terminating. And they and then they interviewed a couple of families who had babies with Down syndrome that year, and it's because they got a false negative. Yeah. Yeah. And then you look at the United States and the statistics are all are all over the place and people can go do their do the work and and look them up. But anywhere between like sixty percent to ninety percent termination rate in the United States, depending on the state that people live in. Um and and like the 
woman who wrote in said, people don't even know for sure that the child does have Down syndrome. There's a small, there could be a small percentage or a large percentage. It's not a hundred percent. So there's that issue. But then I could also go the other way and say, well, it doesn't matter if it is a small percentage or not to terminate based solely on a Down syndrome diagnosis. I say this and I mean it is a modern day form of eugenics. Yeah. Um, and it's a problem, you know, it's yeah. a problem. And I think it's a problem for humanity at large because those of us in the Down syndrome community, we can just start to list the ways in which our lives are better and richer and fuller because we've been learning from and living alongside a person with Down syndrome and we're changed forever and for the better. And then you're in this world where people are just constantly striving for more, 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 better, better, better. Everyone's miserable, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm-hmm. I think we're missing something here, friends. And I, I'm not saying Down syndrome holds the key to human, to the happiness and contentment of humanity, but um, the fact that we have this people group who offers so much to the world and, and we're saying it's okay to, to almost do away with them um, is a big red flag. So let's, let's list some of the ways, mm-hmm. you know, part of what I'd like to do is offer Kate and other listeners as much reassurance as possible because, you know, Kate has, she has grown up in this culture and she has been influenced by the societal norms too, but it sounds like she is already where the parent of a child with Down syndrome is. She's adjusting and moving on and getting prepared and um, wants that baby. So let's list some of the ways that having children with Down syndrome makes your life better. Yeah. I just, I just recorded, I have a podcast coming out 321 and I just recorded it this weekend. We did 10 episodes in a weekend and my, the podcast is based on this idea of the lucky few, which is a phrase that I had coined, meaning few of us have a loved one with Down syndrome and those of us who do are very lucky. And I asked that question. I sat across the table from teachers, from parents who have little children, adult children, from siblings, um, a couple of sisters, their brother is 57, another sibling whose sister is 10, and asked the question, what does it mean to you to be part of the lucky few? And people just start listing off um, how their lives have changed. So one thing is people with Down syndrome have um, a way in which they approach the world. They're just uninhibited. And so there's a sense of they're going to see you in a room or across the street or wherever, and they're going to believe the best in you. Um, they're mm. not going to look at you and think your hair is weird. Or if they do, it's not going to be a weird thing. I'll just be like, hey, your hair is weird. My name's, my dog's <laughs> name is Mason. Like, my name's Mason. What's your name? Or, you know, it's just mm-hmm. this like, um, believing the best in others. I've never seen a people group believe the best in others the way that I do people with Down syndrome. And mm. so my kids have taught me that, um, the way that I approach humanity as a whole, like this is the big stuff, right? I've, yeah. I've never, I, I think without the Down syndrome community in my life, I would not be able to, um, view the world with a lens that is believing the best in others and having grace for the people around me. Um, Mm -hmm. and then this idea of unconditional love, there's some stereotypes that, that fall on the Down syndrome community as a whole. Like they're all so, everyone's so happy, you know, or like they love to hug and my oldest daughter is 10 and she can be a total grump Mm -hmm. and 
would rather not hug you <laughs> or me or anybody, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So like just keeping in mind that everyone with Down syndrome is their own individual. Um, but there yeah. is this sense of like unlimited amounts of forgiveness, um, unlimited amounts of joy in, in the ways mm-hmm. that they approach the world. Um, I mean, my, my oldest daughter, she's only 10. So I'm only, I've only been in this 10 years, but the way that I watch her walk into a world that doesn't see her worth fully. And she knows that and she shows up and she shows up. I mean, the way that people with down syndrome show up in the world, I'm learning more about what it means to be brave, um, to be persistent, to like recognize what it is that I love to do. And then to do it wholeheartedly, regardless of what people think about me. Um, mm-hmm. Those are just a few of the things mm. that I've learned. Those, are, <laughs> Yeah, we could all benefit from that. I think so. I really think so. Yeah. What if we all approach the world that mm-hmm. way? I want to tell this quick story, and it's, it's a little yeah. fun story. But we were at the airport last year, um, all five of us, my whole family. So my oldest is 10, my middle daughter is 7, my youngest is 5. And my 10-year-old and 5-year-old have Down syndrome. And we're waiting for our luggage, and there's music on the airport. And my 10-year-old is found an empty space between the two different luggage carousels. And she's dancing her heart out. It's like fun Michael Jackson or Prince or something fun. And um, she's having a blast, right? And my 7-year-old walks up and is like, Mom, how can she do that and not feel embarrassed? And I said, Babe, you know as well as I do that everyone in this room wishes they were dancing like that to Prince right now but we are too (laughs) inhibited, you know? And like, if Mm -hmm. we could all just, when we're in the airport and a Prince song comes on, we should all stop what we're doing and dance. And we're not going to do it, but I wish, I wish that more of us did, right? Like I wish I had that quality in me. Then it'd be like a mob scene dance. Like we live in a musical. Our lives would be like living in a musical. It'd be wonderful. Just to not care what the world around you thinks in a good way, you know, like, yeah, they're, my, my daughter is so compassionate and completely aware of the people around her and how they're feeling and like the mood in a room, she can read it like no one I know. But at the same yeah. time, she's like, dude, this is what I love to do and I'm going to do it. And you may think I look weird, but I don't care. And it's so refreshing. Yeah. 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 What about your son? What's he like? Um, he's very different, which I love getting to raise two kids with Down syndrome because they are so different. Um, he is a lot more outspoken and bossy than my older, my oldest daughter and a little (laughs) more introverted. So she's pretty extroverted and Mm. wants to be with people all the time. And he would sit in his room and play with his toys for hours and hours at a time. Um, But he, something they both have in common is this ability to, to read emotions. Um, They're so emotionally connected to us as their family and to people around them. And it makes them incredibly compassionate. And my son will just know without me saying anything or without even my husband and I saying things out loud that like he'll just walk up and lay his head on my shoulder or want to just like sit and snuggle right right when I'm needing it or when I'm feeling depleted. Um, mm-hmm. And for a little five-year-old guy, he's very aware of mm-hmm. of the emotional needs of others. It's pretty, pretty mm-hmm. spectacular. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I... Like I said, I want to offer Kate as much reassurance as possible. But, you know, I I want to make sure that she is reassured that she'll be the right mother for her baby and perfectly capable of raising a child with special needs. But also to know that 
she's going to experience all the same, you know, joys and frustrations and pride and heartache and, you know, stickiness Mm -hmm. that every mother feels regardless of who her child is and what challenges they face. And every child is going to face significant challenges. Some of them are just going to be more obvious than others and maybe more challenging than others. Yeah. I totally agree. And the thing that I tell new parents all the time who are expecting a child with Down syndrome and everyone feels really nervous about it. And, you know, rightfully Mm -hmm. so you, the unexpected is very nerve wracking and, um, the unknown. And so what, as soon as that baby is in your arms, it's just a baby, right? Like a baby with down syndrome is a baby. And then you've got this baby and they're your baby. And I've, I've met parents who tell stories of like feeling really terrified and then holding their baby and being like, Oh my gosh, I know you, right? Like I, wow, Mm -hmm. you're my baby. And, and then maybe there's medical issues and maybe there's a heart defect and there's heart surgery or there's eating or all these things that can come along with a diagnosis. And at that point in life, you're the mom and you do what you got to do. And I'll have parents right. say to me like, whoa, you're so, you're so strong. I could never do that. I'm like, oh no, you could. And anyone who's a mom, it's like, yeah. you realize, oh, anything could happen to any of our children at any time. And you do the thing you need to do to get through it and to get your child through it. And yeah, right. Absolutely. And that, that's down syndrome or absolutely. not. It's like, you're going to be a mom and she'll be a mom for a second time. So she's familiar with all this, but at the end of yeah. the day, it's a baby and you're the mom and it's that beautiful, precious bond that that's going to happen. Yeah. 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 Well, what else would you like Kate and listeners to know? I think that just like I'm trying to think through someone with a new diagnosis or a new baby. And, um, we have this idea in life that hard is bad. And I, and I've really come to adopt the idea that hard is hard period. And sometimes it can be bad, but mostly it's just hard. And I think if we Mm -hmm. understand that, um, going into a space we've never navigated before, that feels pretty terrifying. Um, it's going to be hard guys. Like it's going to be really hard. Part of it is because motherhood is just really hard. And part of it is yeah. because raising a child with Down syndrome does have some added, some additions that do make it incredibly difficult. Usually it has nothing to do with Down syndrome and everything to do with the world that has yet to see your child's worth. But yeah, hard is just hard and it's okay, right? Like yeah. it's okay to be, for it to be hard. It's okay not to feel okay. Um, and for new parents, like it, it's okay to go to feel the feelings you're feeling. And if you're going to have a, a moment of feeling devastated, and I've, you know, I've talked to parents on the other side of things. I always say there's another side, and you'll get there. But who feel so much guilt because they were so upset about who their child was going to be before the child entered their life? Like you don't need that guilt, mm-hmm. right? Like you're going to feel the way that you're going to feel. Allow your emotions to come, but hold on real tight to hope, and and just know that you're going to get to another side, and you're going to be so unbelievably grateful to have a child with Down syndrome and to be a part of this community. I can almost guarantee it. Yeah. Yeah. What, what kind of support services should Kate put in place to help her with the newborn stage and then, you know, right. down the road? Um, social media really isn't a, a magical tool in the Down syndrome community. So get plugged in there. Just start, look at the hashtag Down syndrome, hashtag the lucky few, excuse me, there's a hashtag nothing down about it you'll plug in with some great families. There's a resource called um, the DSDN, the Down Syndrome Diagnosis Network. 
and they are a phenomenal resource. They're doing uh, incredible work in the medical community, making sure professionals are educated on what Down syndrome really is so that they can give accurate information to parents with a new diagnosis. Um, and they're an incredible group to get in plugged in with. They're huge on Facebook and you'll instantly plug it, be plugged in with a bunch of moms. And then you can go to like global down syndrome network is great. Um, the national down syndrome, national down syndrome Congress, um, is doing stuff, incredible stuff. All of those resources are really good. Um, and then just know, it's not like this for all babies with Down syndrome, but those first year or couple years are pretty intense because you are looking at a lot of the medical things that could be happening with your child. So just make sure you've got a good pediatrician and you're and they're plugging you in with specialists. And then be your kid's advocate. If you think something's wrong and your gut's telling you something's wrong and you need to see an ENT or you need to see a GI doctor or a pulmonologist or whatever, like you are your kid's best advocate mm -hmm. to make it happen. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's really good advice from somebody who really lives in the trenches. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm here, girl. <laughs> so what else do you have on deck right now? So I have another book coming out. Woo. Um, yeah. In June of this year, June 25th, 2019. What is it? I have my second book. It's called Scoot Over and Make Some Room. Um, subtitle, Creating a Space Where Everyone Belongs. Ooh. And it's stories of... It's 15 chapters. Each chapter is its own essay of sorts of how, what my experience has been raising three kids essentially who live on the fringes of society and, or who've been pushed to the fringes of society and um, what they've taught me about how much space I'm taking up in the world and how much better off I am when I invite people into my space and that there's room enough for all of us at the table. Oh, well, I'd love to get you back in June or sometime this summer to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. I would love that. Can, yeah. We'll make sure a copy gets sent your way for sure. Yeah. And can people pre-order that right now? The book? Absolutely. On Amazon right now. Okay. Yeah. So say the name of the book again. Scoot over and make some room. And um, so when if people want to go find out more about you, mm -hmm. Go to they can, yeah. They can go online. They can go to theluckyfew.com. Perfect. Um, I see. I spend a lot of time on Instagram. My handle is theluckyfewofficial, mm -hmm. and you can keep yeah keep tabs of everything we're doing in those spaces. Great. So I always ask these last two questions, and I know you've answered them before, but much mm -hmm. like the first one, the answers always change. So how would you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. I wonder if it's going to be the same answer. I haven't listened back. I don't know. <laughs> to our episode. Um, nobody ever told me that the unexpected in life is the most beautiful. Oh, that's good. <laughs> My last question is this. Where are you in the world of motherhood? I, in the world of motherhood, I feel like I'm in a transition mm. and this is going to be, I'll make it as short as possible. I always say the years when your kids are five years and younger, especially when you have multiple children, mm -hmm. I call it just in it. And mm -hmm. there's a season where you're in it and it's just, it's so all consuming and overwhelming and mundane. And I mean, you're doing everything and nothing at the exact same time and you're <laughs> bored out of your mind and exhausted because of everything you're doing at the exact yeah. same time. 
right? If you've been there, yep. you know. And oh, yeah. My youngest, yeah. My youngest is now five. So I have five, seven, and 10. And I'm transitioning out of that. All three kids are in school during the day. Um, I, my 10-year-olds, we're, we're heading into pre-teens and puberty. And it's just a, I'm figuring it out again. Yeah. I feel like I kind of figured it out as much as I could those first five years. And now I'm transitioning into, okay, we're in, what exactly is the season? And I don't know. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, with, with kids, I always say that the first 10 years is about protecting them from the world and the next 10 years is about sending them out into it. Mm, yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's a big transition. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. It feels that way, definitely. Yeah. Well, Heather, it's been a pleasure once again. And I do want to have you come back this summer and talk about the new to. book. Yeah. yeah, I would love to. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for talking about this and answering the email. And I, I do hope that this is helpful for the woman who sent the email and for other people listening. I appreciate it. Oh, it's absolutely going to be helpful. Absolutely. I'm really grateful you're shifting that narrative. Thank you. I'm grateful to be doing the work. Yeah. Well, thanks, Heather. We'll talk again. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Now that we've talked with Heather, I wanted to hear from Chris Beard, who is a certified nurse midwife who frequently comes on the podcast to help us sort out the healthcare side of the story. Let's get Chris on the line. Hey, Chris, it's Jeannie. How are you? Hi, Jeannie. I'm good. How are you? Doing okay. Doing good. So most of our listeners already know who you are and are really comfortable with your advice. But for those listeners who are newer to the podcast, we'll just ask the big question, who are you and what do you do? My name is Chris Beard. I am a nurse midwife for Kaiser Permanente in Portland, Oregon, and I have been a midwife for 26 years. And you read the letter. You read Kate's letter. I read Kate's letter. Yeah. So we just finished uh, talking with Heather Avis of The Lucky Few, who is a mother who is raising two children that she adopted as newborns with um, Down syndrome. And now I'd really like to talk to you more about the medical perspective or the healthcare provider's perspective on genetic testing. And your dogs have an opinion. I welcome it. So after you read the letter, what's your take on it? So my take on it is that, you know, the technology for genetic testing has changed so much in the last five to 10 years. It used to be that we offered genetic screening in the form of amniocentesis only to those women over the age of 35, Mm -hmm. because at 35, your risk for having a Down syndrome baby and your risk from losing a pregnancy due to amniocentesis was the same, about one in 234. Mm. The technology has changed, and now we have something, at least in my system, called non-invasive prenatal testing, which is simply a blood test for the mother. Mm -hmm. Um, And so genetic screening is offered uh, universally to pregnant women, no matter how old they are, Mm -hmm. which means that we have women who are 19 or 20 getting genetic screening. Um, And... I think this is a double-edged sword. I think this is a, um, a a process that, if not approached thoughtfully, can yield results that people aren't prepared to to um, face. So, for instance, what do you mean by that? For instance, if you if you have a positive result on the screening test, have you thought about what your what you and your partner would do with those results. Are you a couple who wants to plan for a pregnancy with Down syndrome because you want to 
mobilize your resources and your support while you're still pregnant to welcome this child into your family? Are you the kind of um, couple that doesn't want to know? You'll just cope with whatever comes through your door or out of your body, as the Mm -hmm. case may be. Or are you a couple who will terminate a pregnancy if you have a baby that's not perfect? And so I think the missing piece in a lot of healthcare systems is that pre pre screening, pre genetic testing conversation. And um, um, what what I have seen is that I used to do all my own um, counseling for genetic screening and testing, and I I set aside you know five to ten minutes at the new OB visit to talk to parents. Um, about what the testing means and what it can reveal and ask them to really think about how, how they want to go forward. Is, is this information that they're going to do something with or not? And yeah. I had a, a, a large number of patients who decided after that discussion that, you know, based on their age, their risk was low, they didn't need to do the testing. Based on their age, their risk was high and they would welcome any child that came into their life. Or based on their personal beliefs, they didn't want to parent a child with Down syndrome. So I feel like the missing piece in genetic screening and testing is that pre-conversation. And so what I have seen, you know, the other complicated part is the kind of testing that we offer in our system. You can also learn the gender of your baby at the time you do the Mm -hmm. testing, which is sometime between 11 and like 15 or 16 weeks. And so what I'm seeing is a lot of people are going, oh yeah, I want to learn the gender. And I'm like, well, are you, are you ready to learn the other information too? And people don't think about that. They just are so motivated on learning the gender. So it's a conversation I like to have with people early in their, early in my relationship with them is, you know, what are you going to do with this information? There's kind of a misperception or, or a common concept that people think that it's better to know earlier, you know, as soon as possible, if we know as soon as possible in the pregnancy, then dot, 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 whatever they do. And I kind of question that because maybe you don't need to know everything in advance. Maybe it's enough to be able to have your pregnancy and just experience a joyful pregnancy or all of the normal emotions that come with a pregnancy the way women did for every generation you know, prior to the last few. I think that there, I I am glad that that information is out there for some people, but it's something that I too have, I kind of think the way you do, and I wrote about it in the book, um, Common Sense Pregnancy, about you really got to look at this for what it is. It's Pandora's box a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And once you open that box, and you get a screening test, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to have a child with that particular genetic anomaly. It just means that your chances are higher. So then when you have that information, what do you do? Then you step up the level of screening and testing. Do you need to go further? Or do you at that point say, okay, so the odds are elevated. All right, I'm good with that. You know, For some people, that's going to totally ruin a pregnancy. I was going to say that is the thief. I mean, that is the robber of joy. Yes. That is the robber of joy of a pregnancy. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I have patients who've had babies with Down syndrome. Those kids are thriving and growing and 
happy and challenging and all the things that regular kids are. Yes. They're just kids. And so to, to make this, I mean, the assumption that a down syndrome baby is somehow less than is really difficult for me because I think Mm -hmm. they're different, but yeah, you know, I think, um, it, 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 I mean, it's, it's a personal decision for every family, but I think that for people who have abnormal testing, that the joy is robbed out of their pregnancy, whether they have a, a, a regular genetically regular kid or a down syndrome kid, they have a heaviness through their experience that is unfortunate. Yeah. And anxiety yes. because, you know, every parent faces the unknown. They don't know which kid they're getting. I mean, even if you get gene testing back that says, you know, everything is perfect, um, you still don't know who you're going to get because a big part of it is personality and, you know, all of it, all of it, the whole of a person. But then you add this extra layer of anxiety because, you know, your child is going to come into the world as different. They're going to be born on the margins and we don't have a world of support and acceptance and love for people that are different yet. But I think that maybe along with the fact that people can find out more about their children genetically, I also think that we are finally starting to see the narrative change. And this is something that we talked about with Heather Avis before we got you on the line, is that you know for time immortal, it's always been that these were children that were unwanted. Mm-hmm. And that parents were either encouraged to terminate or they were encouraged to institutionalize or they were pitied or they were shunned, you know. Um, But now there is a greater acceptance of children and people of greater ability, all abilities. It's a slow arc and it certainly isn't present everywhere. But I think, I hope, being crazy optimistic as I am, that the narrative is changing. Well, I know that there are, at least in our metro area, there there are um, groups of parents who are parenting kids with Down syndrome that are available as support for pregnant women and newly newly uh, anointed parents with babies with Down syndrome to um, provide them with support, both you know in person on the phone, online, in a group, in a support system. And so people are not alone anymore um, as I think they were in the past, you know, shunned. Um, And I think there's, there's a really beautiful thing in being part of that kind of a community. And I don't know how people, you know, we all are part of lots of different communities, but I, I rely on my community quite a lot. And I think that what I see from the people that I know that have kids that happen to have Down syndrome is that that they rely on those communities too. And there is a lot of support mm-hmm. and the I've been there and I've faced this and, you know, my kid is in mainstream second grade, counting, knowing her colors, doing all that good stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, I think I think that is one of the advantages of knowing early is if you are the kind of person that wants to gather your support and you know, dive into that world that you're going to be joining very soon. Um, yeah. Then that's a great thing. 
Yeah. Yeah. So in Kate's letter, she's pretty disturbed by the way, um, you know, it sounds like at each stage of her screening and then diagnosis tests, how the information was delivered. And I wondered if you'd comment on that. Well, not knowing what kind of system she's in, um, I think that probably every system has its flaws in how the information is delivered. I don't know that there is a great way to receive news that's unexpected unless it is, you know, with one person, your provider who has your results, who calls you into your office, who is able to guide you through that whole next steps in the process. Um, It sounds like she was really disappointed in how things were handled and um, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't blame her at all. And I would encourage her to give feedback to her system because, you know, people Mm -hmm. make a difference. If you say to your system, Hey, look, you know, I just experienced a diagnosis of my baby having down syndrome and these are the ways in which it was not helpful for me. And, you know, systems do look and, and look at their internal processes and decide, okay, when we have somebody with abnormal testing, we're going to have them with a, with a, um, with a warm handoff. So we're going to have one case manager who calls them with the news, who sets them up for their next appointment, who follows up with them after perinatology, who does all these things. So it's, Mm -hmm. it sounds like a system problem, but I will say having been the person to share unexpected news that it it's, it's never easy. And um, systems do change when, when they hear from their participants that it's not helpful. Yeah, that's really good advice. That's advocacy in action. And that's a hard thing to do when you are the parent who is at such a vulnerable stage in life. You know, she's pregnant and um, she's vulnerable. And yet that may be the most important time. She may be the person who is meant to do that, to, you know, have that thoughtful conversation or share the podcast with them and say, hey, this is, this was my experience. The other thing that I think is, is um, maybe the elephant in the room is that there is, everybody has a bias. And if the person that is Mm -hmm. giving her the information, if their bias is, um, if their bias is against people with Down syndrome and against women having babies with Down syndrome, then she's going to receive information in a, in a different way than if it's somebody who's warm and affirming and um, supportive, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And it's something that Heather was talking about too, where she's, you know, she said that oftentimes the first thing that people will say is, I'm so sorry. Exactly. That is not what you should be saying. No. Sorry for my child. Don't say that. Don't say that. Yeah. I mean, you can say, I'm sure this is unexpected. Yeah. We're going to help you through this. We have lots of resources. Yeah. But to say, I'm sorry, that is not something you say to someone who's going to have a child. Right. No, you don't. So I think that there's a lot of work that can be done systemically in terms of communication. You know, there's always, I think one of the biggest challenges in healthcare is that communication piece, because even if you've known your, your patient or your client for a while, you don't really know each other. You know, the person that gets presented to you in the office 
And they see the person that you present in the office and they don't know, maybe they don't understand or, but you don't know it. You know, it's a complicated little game and you can't play it the same way with every person. You have to, you have to work within the communication styles of each person and it doesn't always match. And it sort of sounds like maybe that happened here. That's, that's true. It sounds like the way that information was shared with her was not the way that she best received it. Yeah. 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 And it's, and quite frankly, it sounded like a very uncoordinated system. It really did. Yeah. Personally. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. Not ideal at all. I'm really glad that Kate reached out though, because this is an important conversation and more and more parents are going to be facing this very same situation that Kate's in because more and more parents are being offered genetic screening and testing, you know, than ever. And like I said, it's opening up Pandora's box. And once that box is open, what do we do with the contents? And so we, we sort it out with conversations like this and a range of perspectives. Yeah. So thanks, Chris. Is there anything else you think listeners should know? Well, I want to say congratulations. On what? To Kate, who's having her baby. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know. It's wonderful. And it's her second too. And, you know, it's always an adventure, no matter what kind of baby's coming to your house. You never know who you're going to (laughs) get. It's so true. It's a crapshoot every time. (laughs) It's blind dating. Yes. And and you're almost guaranteed to fall in love and then spend the rest of your life with that person. So true. That's terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Chris, thanks. Once again, you've come through. I really like the way that you provide, you know, really common sense information. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I always enjoy being a guest on your podcast. It's, um, food for thought for me. And, um, I, I know you have a lot of listeners who are looking for advice. And I think the advice that you provide and the guests that you have are always really spot on. Well, cool. So I appreciate being one of those guests. Well, thanks. We'll talk again really soon. Okay. Thanks, Jeannie. Bye, Chris. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said, Mama said, That's it for this week, everybody. I know that was a lot of information, but thanks for sticking with us. Also, thanks to our sponsor, Birdsong Botanicals, for helping us keep the lights on here at Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics. Check out their postpartum herb bath over at birdsongbotanicals.com, and don't forget to use the promo code COMMONSENSE at checkout for your 10% discount. Our guests today were Heather Avis and Chris Beard, and you can find out more about Heather at theluckyfew.com. You can learn more about me at genefaulkner.com. Email me, gene at genefaulkner. Tweet me at genefaulkner. Find Common Sense Pregnancy on Instagram and Facebook. You know, get in touch and go buy the book, will ya? Common Sense Pregnancy is available everywhere. Common Sense Pregnancy Parenting and Politics is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. We'll talk again next week, everybody. Bye-bye. 
The Dad Experience, a pod network podcast, is a place where new dads, seasoned dads, and even grandfathers can come together and share our victories and some of those parent fails, too. In each episode, your hosts, Mike and Adam, open up about their own dad life, discuss important topics, and bring on dads from all walks of life to share their perspective on fatherhood. Because let's face it, we don't always have the answers or solutions. You can find the Dad Experience on the Apple Podcast app, the Pod Network app, and the Google Play Store. We also want to hear from you, so join the conversation and share an experience with us on Twitter at Podcast, or on the Dad Experience Facebook page and help us navigate through all things we call fatherhood.